meats and all food starts at the farm. Agriculture is a culture and any culture thrives with diversity. We are no different. There are so many different types of people with different backgrounds that make up our agriculture and food value chain. Today we're celebrating Black Business Owners Month by visiting with Angela Dawson, a black business owner on a mission to help African-American farmers and farm hers, of course, at her business, The 40 Acre Co-op. So Angela, let's start off with talking a little bit about your background. Did you grow up in agriculture or what was it that spurred you to start a farm? Sure. So. Um, I am what is called now a reclamation farmer, which basically means that I'm a fourth generation farmer that's reclaiming my family's farming legacy that was lost two generations ago due to systemic racism within the USDA system. I have not heard that term before, but I love it. And I think it's probably a really important term where we're at right now. Um, so were you able to experience, I know, I know you said here in this area, you spent some time with your grandparents. You know, I always think about if you've not been on a farm and then you come into a rural setting like this, like, wow, what a change in life, right? So yeah. did you have some of, some of this experience in your past that, that led you to this path? Yeah, for a long part of my childhood, I was raised by my grandmother, who was originally a farmer, but was displaced and lived in an urban setting. And so one of the things that I like to say, I kind of joke about learning about regenerative agriculture and this new sexy term, because once I looked it up and figured out what it was, I was like, oh, you mean what my grandmother taught me? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a real term. So I grew up with my grandparents. She was um, a child of the Depression, so she always grew her own food, taught me how to grow my own food. It was always just a calling. But to tell you the truth, I, I came into full-time farming from being a second-year law student. Okay. So I was a second year law student on sabbatical and I wasn't really sure if a full time law career was something that I was interested in in Minnesota. So I went on sabbatical to Oregon and I grew on a medical cannabis farm for the summer. I grew on one and I invested in one. And honestly, it was the first time ever I had ever made up enough money to pay off debts. At the end of that growth season, I paid off not one, but two car notes in full for the first time as a divorced mother of three. It was a really big deal for me because I had to make a, the decision then if I was gonna go back into law school debt and that whole cycle of debt that I had been accruing from being a student for a long time or if I was going to take back my family's farming legacy. So I decided on the farm. You decided, I'm, I'm going to go for it, I'm right? going to go for it, yeah. Yeah, so what year was that? And then a little bit about your path to get here, because I yeah. know there's a lot on the in-between, I'm sure. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, my entire farming, the farming story of most black farmers, but mine in particular, has some trauma in there, and as well as some successes. But basically, um, after that was in 2017 when I decided that I was not going to go back to law school. I was going to go for it full time. Now I will say that my father is a farmer, his father is a farmer, and his grandfather is a farmer. So technically I am a fourth generation farmer, if you don't count my great, great, great grandfather, Jabez Dawson, who purchased his freedom through farming. Wow. So he was, um, so he's really where our original 
family farming legacy started right. and uh, his grandchildren lost it and I restarted it. And so, um, but after I decided, I did consult with my father who was a farmer and he is the one that told me to go for it. Okay. <laughs> a lot of times parents who are farmers say, no, this is yeah. too hard. This is, this is a tough path, right? But he said, go for it. Yes. He was nervous about saying go for it, but he knows that I think some of the resilient, there's a certain kind of resilience that some of us have. And I will say that just because my story has some parts of trauma in it, I've had to learn how to be resilient. I identify as a black indigenous woman, which in itself has trauma stories here, in the, especially in Minnesota. So that's my ancestral heritage. I do have a question. Can uh -huh. you explain to me a black indigenous woman? Mm -hmm. um, so for native people in the yes. area as well? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. So my family legacy here in Minnesota is the mixture of African-American and indigenous native people in this territory, actually reaching all the way to Missouri from Minnesota. On my mother's side, it's Minnesota. On my father's side, it's Missouri. So uh, there's a mixture of it. And there's even a little European in there, but it really wouldn't make sense for me to identify with that. <laughs> so I identify primarily as a black indigenous woman. And, um, and it's because those are the people and the elders that have taught me a lot about who I am as a woman and who I am as a farmer as well. They were all mostly black and indigenous women who have led me and taught me a, and led me to these choices that I'm making today. So this place is beautiful. When we drove in, it was like, you know, you just like it opens up and, and you've got the river here and growing things and you've got animals out there. So you grow hemp and we already walked mm -hmm. through, yep. um, I think, one of your main greenhouses yes. probably with your mother plants, which yes. we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about not just the farming part, but starting the farm as a business. Because I, yeah. I always like to remind people outside of agriculture when we're connecting them to what goes on in agriculture. Yeah. This is a business. Yes. It's a, it's a unique business, farming mm -hmm. is, but it's a business, right? Mm -hmm. And farmers go through all of the same things that any other business owner does. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit about starting the business and deciding that you wanted to have it be a co-op. Well, that's the interesting part of the story, and that's where a little bit of trauma comes in. So when I decided to become a full-time farmer, I first moved five miles north of here, and I bought into a farm where I operated organic hogs and an organic vegetable CSA. And this was the first time I decided to interact as an adult with the USDA. And so uh, in order for me to get this contract for my organic hogs, I had to build uh, certain kinds of housing for the for the pigs. You can't just have organic hogs um, just because they're hogs. There's really strict requirements in order for them to be considered high quality organic. So I went to the local USDA, the county USDA office, and I inquired about a program that I saw online called the Socially Disadvantaged Farmers Microloan Program would have been perfect. A small $50,000 microloan helped me get the equipment that I needed to secure the contract so I could sell my hogs. And um, and that's where the trauma started. So I went into the office. I was told that I, I couldn't do it. Why was I here? What made me think I could do it? I needed a man to apply with me. I, um, why am I here? What am I doing here? Why am I here is basically, and then denied. So that's pretty much kind of how the story went. Um, and 
I lost the farm, I lost the animals, and I had to start all over again. Mm -hmm. But what happened um, after that, I got on the phone and I basically got on Zoom. And I had to look up why was it so... I had to, I tried to understand what this interaction was about with me and this FSA office from the USDA because it was just so mysterious to me. I am um, a college-educated woman. I've done a lot of business plans before. I've written business plans and gotten grants of over a million dollars before at my previous job. And so I really couldn't understand what was the barrier between me and this farming future that I was so passionate about. And I thought that's what the USDA was there for, is to help people like me who have farming passions and want to provide organic food to their community. And so I got on the phone and started making phone calls and trying to find out what was going on with this interaction. I ended up getting in contact with a lot of black farmers around the country mm -hmm. who had worse stories than I did. And, uh, and, and I did some research, and I found out about this thing, this class action lawsuit that black farmers had been in with the United States Department of Agriculture for over, I don't know, it might be 50 years now. It started in the 80s. Right, right. Um, and then I learned that it still isn't really settled. So I thought, well, I don't have 50 years to figure <laughs> this out. I want to do this now, <laughs> I right? I do this now. Yeah. And luckily for me, Minnesota is a state full of cooperatives. We have agriculture. We actually have some of the highest grossing co-ops in the country with Land O'Lakes and all, all of these. And the co-op movement has been very strong here. I'm a member of a lot of co-ops here in Minnesota. That's how I fed my family healthy food. And I was very involved in the food movement when I lived in the Twin Cities. And so healthy food was always an important thing to me. So I knew that that's um, where co-ops actually are really responsible for bringing organic food to the market and for bringing healthy food to communities in general. And so I did have, just from my own business education, a lot of understanding of the cooperative model. But the Minnesota co-ops here lack diversity. Mm -hmm. There were no black leaders in any of these co-op businesses. Right. And so, um, but I know that the co-op model is something that people can use, especially people who can't get their needs met from the rest of the market. It's a way to organize your resources. So that's how the 40 Acre Co-op was born. Yeah. And for listeners who may not completely understand a co-op model, can you explain it just a little bit, high level? Yeah, yeah sure. The high level of the co-op model is that uh, there is, uh, it, the, the co-op model, the way it's practiced in the United States, actually comes from England. Mm -hmm. And 1619, I believe, the Rochdale Society of Cooperative Pioneers is where this model started, although cooperation is an ancient kind of practice. But the formal way that it's practiced where we have these seven principles of cooperation, and these are worldwide global principles, and they've been affirmed. I think it's, uh, there's, a, there's an International Cooperative Alliance, ICA, that has affirmed these same seven principles over the last hundred years. Okay. And so if you're going to be a cooperative, you have to adhere to those principles, which we do. And then we actually did organize formally as a Minnesota cooperative, which means that we do have members. We have members who are producers and we have members who are investors. Okay. Investors don't get to decide. They don't get to vote because that's how typical corporate culture has always been, where the investors get to control the direction of the company. Where as in the cooperative model, the people who use the business get to vote and decide. Yes. And so that's how we've organized um, and been able to. And we also feel like it's a better way to distribute resources. 
and decision making uh, in an important venture like this. You shared um, a little bit about the traumatic story, uh, the problems that you experienced in trying to work with USDA on the first farming operation. Um, going into this one, when you started the 40 acre co-op, as a black woman, as a farm her, I, I never call them farmers, they're farm hers in our world, right? You're a farm her. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing to move the needle for others, right? Because I could tell right away in reading about you that, um, yes, you're going to do your farm, but you're also going to figure out what you can do to help the next person and the next person, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is a systemic issue. Is. And so let's talk about what the steps you took were when you started this cooperative business. Sure. So I did do some research and... Luckily for me, we have a lot of co-op experts in the state of Minnesota. So I did call on that community and people that I knew in the co-op community. And I will say, you know, some of them were supportive and some of them weren't. And so I think there's always a question probably with a lot of farm hers that that may um, that may kind of be familiar with this, but people discourage you from farming sometimes. They don't think that you can do it, and they think that you're taking off more than you can handle. And farming isn't easy, and you have to have a passion around it. But um, I think that, you know, maybe as a black woman, I faced more barriers uh, because people didn't believe that I could do it. And so, um, but what I did do is I kept going for it anyway. And I did have a community, I'll say a lot of the black farmers that I contacted initially, and I told them about what I was doing. I, 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 told, I already knew that I wasn't going to wait for another 50 years and I wasn't gonna go back to the USDA and ask for any more money again and go through that experience. And so um, I figured out a way, I, con I contacted a local co-op attorney who helped me figure out all of the organizing documents that I needed to start the cooperative. And I called on the community to say, we need members and we need member support and we have to organize this. And so actually it was a model that um, I know worked in another cooperative venture. And as a matter of fact, the attorney that helped us with the organizing documents helped with the very um, with the founding of another really interesting co-op that operates in this area called Organic Valley. So um, we have a lot of similar uh, principles as that co-op. But, you know, what we say when we when we adopt principles from the majority community, we say that we indigenize it. So we have to make it work for the community that we're working with, which has different priorities. We have our own priorities. Right now, we have uh, 30 active members who I work with on a monthly basis in seven states and two tribal territories. Uh, I have a waiting list of over 300 people who want to get programming services, but I just don't have the capacity for right now at least. And so um, what we do is we work on getting them access to genetics. We work on getting them access to the technology and information. I help them on business planning, grant writing for their own farms. Some in some programs, because I am, my background is professional grant writing, I have been able to get some grants to help farmers start their own farms. And then I just mentor them along depending on where they're at. All farmers, especially farmers of color, are at all really different um, capacities for 
learning to operate a full-time farm. And so I work with people where they're at, but my overall goal with the co-op, especially because we are using hemp as a catalyst. And basically we're using hemp because that's what I know how to grow very well. My team also, we have an expertise of about 25 years of cannabis growing experience on our management team, but it really is the catalyst for economic equity for farmers right now. There aren't any other crops in agriculture that are really making farmers sustainable living. And because a lot of our farmers are in economic crisis, because they haven't had access to funding, they don't have generational wealth that's been inherited to them, they, we had to find the crop that could give us the biggest return in the shortest amount of time. And right now that's cannabis and hemp. Yeah. Well, it's a fast changing industry and obviously a high growth industry. And yeah. so um, that's the name of the game, right? Finding mm -hmm. that diverse spot that yeah. that you can make a business work in and you can help other people make a business work in. So when you talked about the steps to starting your business, two mm -hmm. things jumped out at me mm -hmm. that make me know um, so so similar to so many women that I meet, you have to have your cheerleaders and that community mm -hmm. of black farmers that you mentioned, yeah. right? Those are the people. Mm -hmm. Those are your people that yeah. said, you can do this. Or you looked at them and you looked at their stories and you said, yes. I can do this. If they can yeah. do this, I can do this, right? Yeah. And not only that, I mean, I'll, I'll have to say that like black farmers around the country are in really different um, positions because most farmers who identify as black farmers are in the South. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But in Minnesota, they say the black farmer population here is 0.03%. And what we found with locating black farmers and finding this community is that in a lot of communities like in the north in Minnesota and Iowa and Wisconsin, uh, there's no benefit to identifying yourself as a black farmer. So I get a lot of calls from people who say that they've just kind of been hiding and in the cut and not really. I mean, what is the, it targets you really? I mean, right. if you're already isolated in a rural area. And if you're targeting yourself saying I'm a black farmer and I should have something that really can put you in a vulnerable position. So um, but luckily for me, when people hear about the cooperative model, I just get a lot of calls. I don't have to find them anymore. We did have all throughout 2020, we had weekly Zoom meetings uh, where people knew that this conversation was coming up. Um, every week we'd have a different topic and we'd have black farmers join. And that's where I met a lot of the community. But I'll have to say a lot of people, especially farmers in the South, were scared. They were scared for me. They didn't want to join the co-op. In some areas, hemp is, isn't legal yet. I've been ostracized a lot in Minnesota for saying that I grow hemp. I just started being comfortable in 2021 with saying that I'm a hemp farmer. Um, my first um, time coming out as a hemp farmer. And <laughs> coming out, as, coming a out farmer. as a hemp farmer. Uh, oh, and having a local community bank here. Um, once we started getting support and donations from other members, the bank accused me of trafficking. <sighs> and uh, they didn't want, they said they didn't want my money because they thought that I was violating their charter. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it wasn't an easy thing and it still isn't. I mean, I mean, people are starting to really understand that there are over 35,000 documented uses of hemp and it's right. not just for recreational people that want to get high, right. but there's all kinds of medical industrial farming and right. even bioplastics and climate mitigating aspects to growing hemp that really benefit not only the farmer, but the community. And so I'm starting to get stronger with articulating that so that people can understand that 
you know, when people associate black people and hemp or cannabis, there's automatically a stigma that you kind of have to work through before you can even talk about the wonderful aspects of being a black woman farmer. And so um, I will say that, you know, some of the older traditional farmers, you know, we have farmers all the way from young 30 year olds to I believe the average age is about mid 60s anyway. Yeah, like 67 or something like that even. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, even with I have some of those what we call legacy black farmers, which are farmers who have been able to hold on to their farming legacies, where mine was interrupted. But a lot of those legacy farmers, especially in the Deep South, were very nervous. Mm-hmm. Why are you growing hemp? Why, well, you call me next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you're, you're bringing yeah. a whole world of, of stuff onto yourself, yeah, right? Yeah. So I, I think what I picked out there is you've gained confidence in yourself and in your story and in putting that story out there and, and, mm-hmm. and pushing that out there more. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say the biggest factor in, in building that confidence has been? Has it been just doing it and, and sitting in it and figuring it out and, and, you know, taking those little steps or is there, is there something else? I mean, I think that's a really big part of just succeeding in farming in general is just sitting in it and, you know, waiting over the storm sometimes and, um, you know, and doing as much, uh, damage mitigation as you can, but really, um, with, I'll have to say that there are people that I really do appreciate who gave me the grace and the time to figure some of these things out because it isn't super easy and it hasn't been done before this way. And there's really not too many black women led cooperatives that are in, especially in this space. There's not a lot of women in hemp and cannabis anyway. And there's, um, and there's a lot of barriers that people, even some people even some women who felt like I might have been biting off more than I could chew. And so it is still about the resilience of staying in it and staying there and being committed to the passion of wanting to create this business that can have opportunities for everyone. I mean, even with the small resources that I've been able to gather so far, I have I have five stories of farmers who who were on the borderline of whether or not they would become a farmer, they were just home gardeners and that have purchased farms and have gone in full time and that are committing to the co-op full time and wanting to grow with us as we grow. And But, you know, not everyone can afford us that grace. I have a member in a tribal territory and she, she's so inspirational. She's a single mom of six kids. Oh, my. And she had a steady job with the tribe. But she really doesn't want to stay there. And the job is stifling and there's no growth. She already hit the glass ceiling. She has six kids Mm -hmm. and she already farmed for their regular food, but she wanted to get out of poverty permanently. It's a very poor tribe. And so um, it just really makes me super inspired that she found 40 acres. She bought the 40 acres. It's doing really well for her. I helped her kind of figure out, you know, things to look for, even when considering getting a piece of land and gave her some pointers on the things that I did to help me succeed in farming. And it's working for her. And it's just one of the things that makes me um, committed to keep going. Yeah, you're you're a part of her her growth and her mm-hmm. success. So you led right into what I was going to ask you next. Um, 
about the women in your cooperative mm -hmm. and, and you already answered it, right? You, you've, you've got some of these women and you've got some of these success stories. Um, it sounds like you're able to not just help provide them a business opportunity, but to be a mentor and to provide some of that confidence, mm -hmm. right? In, in what you've learned, maybe not always the easiest way. Yeah. 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 If I could save them just, you know, even for me, cause I was mentored a lot by elder women who, I mean, and I always believe that, you know, the wisdom of elders can change your life <laughs> yeah. and it can make things a lot easier for you and can save you years of hardship even. And so um, I wish I had a black woman mentor in farming, but for now I'm her. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, you know, my, my father tells me a lot of stories about his mother who was a very, uh, she was kind of like the maitre d' of the food system in Iowa, Southeast Iowa is where they operated a pretty, a large and sprawling food hub that fed a lot of that community in that area. And uh, she was known, she made 12 different kinds of pies. She had chickens, she had eggs, and she had a pantry that everyone came to, to eat. And so I never had a chance to meet her and, and in person, but I learned a lot from her stories that my father and his, and his siblings tell me about. So what is your mission? If you had a written mission mm -hmm. of the 40-acre co-op. By the way, where did the name 40-acre co-op come from? Yeah, so there's a, there is a story there. So, and that kind of leads to the, the reason why I'm a fourth-generation reclamation farmer is um, originally in 1865, there was a special order 15 that was to allow uh, the, the freed slaves who fought in the Civil War uh, 40 acres and a mule to reestablish their free life and their free livelihood. And some of the farmers started to settle the space and then Abraham Lincoln was killed and the administration was changed. And the new administration reneged on the promise and displaced those farmers. And I like to say that black people have been uh, unstable in housing ever since. So back to the 40 acres. So back to the 40 acres. Yeah. And, our and our logo has the mule kicking. I just, I just, um, yeah, I, I just found out that I had to explain that to someone that they kind of didn't understand what the mule was for. But it is the 40 acres and the mule that was uh, inten intended for freed black people once, the, once slavery was ended, but never happened. Thank you for that. I didn't, I didn't know that story, but I think that's mm -hmm. a pretty important story if, mm -hmm. if you think about the history of black farmers in general. Absolutely. Uh, but we also do actually operate on 40 acres. Um, <laughs> and too, so it works together. Actually, that, yeah. On the cooperative, how do people become members? And like, what are the benefits of them being members? And are there certain requirements? Yeah, so right now, because of the waiting list situation, I'm really bringing in members who are ready to grow as, or as close to being ready to grow with us as possible because the ultimate goal of the cooperative is to bring about economic equity for black, indigenous, and other marginalized farmers. And so that's kind of how we say it because I do live in the Pine County of Minnesota. I think 90% white uh mostly men in this county. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have farming history. Well, a lot of their sons and their nephews and their grandsons are working for me because their families don't have a strong farming legacy for them either right. because um, small farmers aren't really supported by the USDA at all. And so 
they're all looking for hemp as a way to create economic opportunity. And so even though we prioritize, I do prioritize black and indigenous and other marginalized farmers, I'm looking to bring people who haven't had who have no options for support first and direct those resources to them. And then as we continue to grow the co-op and get more resources, we bring more people on. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned Wonder Woman. Can you tell me just a little bit about Wonder Woman? Yeah. Wonder Woman is kind of my favorite gal right now. The thing about hemp and the most important thing that people forget is that it's the feminized plant that gives the medicine. The male plant is where you get the rope and the industry and animal bedding and some of the other purposes. But the feminized plant is where we get the healing compounds. And um, and Wonder Woman was named, and she's spelled with a U, W-U-N-D-E-R. And she's actually named after the original Wonder Woman before the commercial Wonder Woman, who actually was an Amazon indigenous warrior okay. who fought and protected for women and children. And she kicked a lot of ass. And, but she was also uh, the protector of the weak and the sick. And so... Um, there are traits that I bred this particular strain of hemp for, and it includes resilience, and it includes fighting off pests and disease, and it also includes creating a powerful healing medicine for people who use it. And so I thought about the original Wonder Woman, who her actual real name is Califia. She was considered the queen of the island of California. It's part of the myth. Um, but she was an Amazonian woman said to live in the island of California before it became a state in that area. And she um, and she was a, a strong and powerful woman. And that's really the essence of the strain of my hemp. I love it. I, I kind of think you are the Wonder Woman for <laughs> for yourself and for your family and for the people who are part of your co-op. So I think it's very fittingly named. I, I absolutely love it. But when, when you walked me through out there, I was like, what is this Wonder Woman that mm-hmm. she's talking about? So thank you for the explanation. Okay, so uh, we talked a little bit about um, some of the systemic issues and racism and the history, right? Mm-hmm. And l- let's bring that to today. If there was something that you could ask the agriculture community in general mm-hmm. to think about a way that people could help broaden minds, open minds, mm-hmm. and you know, carry forward diversity in this industry, um, I know that's a really big question, mm-hmm. but but. What is it you would say to that? Well, I would say that I do. I am starting to talk to the USDA a little bit more. I feel like maybe with this new administration, they brought on new leaders within the USDA who are having listening sessions that I've been invited to. But I would say in general, like the rest of the farming community who are not policy wonks and trying to make decisions for the rest of our lives, I would say that the... The polarization between black farmers and white farmers is false and it's unnecessary and that supporting black farmers does not mean that white farmers don't get anything and that actually supporting black farmers is a way to improve agricultural overall because all of us benefit when the least of us benefit. But not only that, black farmers have been the bedrock of American agriculture and 
they are responsible for inventions that we still use today, like the corn planter, the combine plow, refrigerated trucking even was a black farmer's invention. And so um, I think that people don't maybe really, when they think too much about the polarized uh, problems between black farmers and non-black farmers, they think that there's an either or option. But I, because I'm a cooperative person, and I believe in the cooperative model and all of its aspects. I believe that supporting especially black and indigenous farmers really uplifts not only the rest of the rural community, but it also even benefits the climate and agriculture in general. And so I would invite people to think a little bit differently about what the issues are that are keeping us apart. And, um, you know, I, I feel like there could be more ways for us to get together and help each other. And that helping a black farmer is not going to make you poor or is not going to take away all of your family's resources. And that you actually probably find that it's going to make us all even better. I love that. You know, and um, over the last eight years of meeting over 450 women mm -hmm. farmers, right? Um, farming... It is there's disparity there in like you have the conventional and you have the organic and you have the big and you have the small or you have the the white or the black or mm -hmm. whatever it is but when you peel it all back mm -hmm. everybody's doing it for somewhat of the same reason right yeah. they want to feed their family they want to feed their community they want to provide economic stability for their family or community mm -hmm. and you have a passion for growing something right yes. and so there, there's a bonding point there mm -hmm. to start from. So I, I love what you shared there. So is there anything else you want to share in general uh, with our audience? I would love to hear uh, how people can find out more about what you do. What's your website? Yes, yeah, so our website is www.40acre.coop. So we recently became a part of the co-op domain, which it's kind of a big deal because not everyone can get that domain, but we are co-op domain, 40acre.coop. We are going to be rolling out products this fall. Oh. Uh, and so Wonder Woman is going to be available um, to the general public and all of her wonder. People will get to experience her, and we're really excited about that. And, um, and we're also hoping to be able to show some more of the dynamic biodiversity of hemp by showing some of the ways that we can help mitigate some climate damage using the hemp plant. So there's a lot in store for the co-op uh, this year, and um, we're hoping that we'll be able to see people in public soon. Oh my gosh, yes, right? <laughs> well, Angela, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with Farmer Talks and to talk about some of the issues and some of the, the stuff that you've gone through to get here. And I know that it will provide some of those points of confidence to people who are listening too. So thank you very much, I appreciate it. Thank you, this is amazing. I hope you all learned as much as I did from listening to Angela's story about what each and every one of us can do to support not only black business owners, but African-American farmers. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Farm Her Talks, sponsored by Nationwide. Nationwide.